Well, good morning, everybody. Go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I don't know if you've ever done something like this, um, but my wife, Tori, and I, um, usually when we sit down to play a game, it's a pretty involved game. It's longer. It usually can take anywhere between an hour or if we actually, if we, we really do poorly, it'll take less than an hour, but if usually it'll take an hour, maybe even a couple of hours, it's usually an involved strategy game. And so what we do is we get it all set up at our dining room table and we are prepared to sit down and, and get after this game. Well, on occasion, um, oftentimes, in fact, we play kind of later in the evening, um, before, like closer to time to go to bed. And there are times where, you know, we're just getting to a point where like, I'm tired, I can't think a ton, or maybe we do this in the middle of the day and we have somewhere to be. I'm like, so we just gotta, we're gonna hit the pause button on this game. Well, when we do that, we're not gonna pack the game up before we finish it and then put it away. What we actually do is we leave it all laid out on our table and we plan on coming back to it later and pick right back up where we left off. I don't know if you've ever done something like that before with a game or perhaps you're someone who does that with movies. Uh, I've done this before, but why in the world would you start a movie and then pause it and then come back like three days later? Like what in the world? But bottom line, you've probably experienced something like this, you get it. Well, we actually, it feels like we have done that with Acts chapter two. Like Tim Morero a couple weeks ago um, began Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And so the game was left out on the table and we hit the pause button in the middle of Peter's sermon. And then Zach Durr came and taught last week, which was great. But now this week we are coming back to the table to resume the game. We're going to pick up where we left off. And it feels odd to start right back in the middle of the game, in the middle of the sermon, so to speak. And so we're going to do something that um, Tori often finds annoying because I do this during, like when we sit back down, I'm saying, we're not just going to start the game back up. Like we're not just going to like jump right into it. We need to know where we've been. We need to know how we got to this place. Like what's in my hand? What is in your hand? We need to get to a place of let's, let's pick up where we left off and know what has led us to that current point. And so likewise, as we return to the game, we're not just gonna jump back in. We gotta know where we've been. We gotta talk about where we're coming from. And so here's just a brief little rehash of what's taking place in Acts chapter two. So Acts chapter two, um, the Holy Spirit, God himself, the third person of the Trinity has arrived onto the scene in a big way. So the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers, um, the disciples, the apostles, those in the upper, upper room. And all of a sudden, um, in a time where all of Israel is gathered together for Pentecost, one of several feasts um, during the year where all of the Jewish people would converge on Jerusalem, um, the Holy Spirit has descended upon the disciples. And all of a sudden, as they proclaim the works of God, all of the people of Jerusalem are like, they're hearing them proclaim the mighty works of God in their own languages. And they're like, what is going on right now? Where is all this coming from? And some of them, they marvel. They're, they're amazed at what they see and what they hear. Others though, we're told mock. And they say, oh, they're just filled with new wine. In other words, they're drunk, which is an interesting explanation because I have never come across anybody who has had alcohol and then all of a sudden gained the ability to, to speak another language that they have never learned. That makes no sense. 
but it also proves that sometimes when we don't have an explanation for something, we make stuff up to make it make more sense, right? And so that's what's happening. And Peter hears this, he, he catches this, and so he stands up before thousands, and he says, yeah, what you are seeing is, these people are not drunk, for it's only, he says, 9 a.m., which I, think, I can think of a number of other reasons why they're probably not drunk, other than the fact that it's 9 a.m., yet that's what he presents to them, and he goes on to say, this is not what, it's not drunkenness, but let me tell you what this is. And so we see him give his explanation in verse 16. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And that shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter quotes Joel's prophecy to show that what the people were witnessing was not drunkenness, but a partial fulfillment of this prophecy. The spirit is being poured out just as Joel began with. And he ends with this powerful statement from Joel that everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, it's not tied to race, it's not tied to gender, it's not tied to those who are young, those who are old. It's not tied to socioeconomic status. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What follows are his own words, building a case for who this Lord is. Who, who is this Lord who we call upon his name to be saved? He's gonna build a case for who this Lord is and he's going to present their rejection of him to them. So because he's making a case and he's building an argument, we're gonna read it all the way through, verses 22 through 36. And I'm gonna warn you ahead of time that you might, you might get excited as you read and hear Peter's argument. Like it might bring a little bit of excitement out of you because, our, because of our tendency to villainize the religious leaders and the Israelites at the time for their rejection of Jesus, most of us are gonna hear the truth bombs that Peter drops on them, and we might even pump our fist. We might say, get them, Peter. Right? You tell them. It's almost like if you have ever um, come across some debates that are recorded and put on the internet. Um, not that I'm not looking for them, but I've, I've come across at least titles they've come up, whether it's on YouTube or Facebook or wherever it is. And you see like, you'll see that the title of the video, so-and-so owns, like in all caps, so-and-so owns someone else during debate. Something like that. I think that's a silly, that's just the way to get people to look at it, but so they, they put emphasis on it. And I kind of feel like if, if Peter's YouTube clip was put on there, it would say, must watch. Peter owns, all caps, Peter owns the Israelites at Pentecost. So as you hear this, you might do a fist pump. Just watch out for your neighbor. 
or if you're not that animated, you, you might just give a good solid grunt and agreement. Mm, right, something like that. So let's look at this, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Mm. Peter's purpose here is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is this Lord that Joel speaks of. And he does so with a combination of tangible evidence and fulfilled prophecy. This slide here is especially for you note takers because as I was studying and preparing for this morning, I was, I was tempted to come at it exactly how you see it. Working through all the tangible evidence first and then going through the fulfilled prophecy. But it dawned on me that this here, this morning, is a message about someone else's message. And he did not present his message this way. So instead, he presents both, at, both of them at various times and with great purpose, I'm sure, because um, he is freshly filled with the Spirit. So it would be silly for me to rearrange his message for the purpose of my own. That being said, as we work our way through, I will make it clear when he presents one or the other. I want to make sure that we are on the same page and seeing what it is that he's doing and what he's trying to show them. So Peter wastes no time identifying who this Lord is and making it clear that they already know who he is. He begins, he says, Jesus of Nazareth. Do not overlook the significance of this title and his use of this. Jesus of Nazareth. This is a humble title that Jesus has been used for Jesus throughout the Gospels, has also been used. They would have been familiar with this. 
Why is he pointing out that Jesus is of Nazareth? So that they can go back and check the records. You see, he, he wants them to understand that this Jesus I'm talking about, it's not some Jesus from over there in that town or this town or that. No, no, this is the Jesus of Nazareth that you can go back and check. Remember, he was brought up in Nazareth. So I wanted you to know I'm talking about that Jesus who came from Nazareth. And then as he continues on, he kind of like, he triples down on, hey, you guys should know who I'm talking about because he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. In other words, proven to you, showed you for you, displayed for you, attested to you by God. How? With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. They would have been familiar with all that Jesus did because that's why there were so many crowds following him. It says that Jesus, the one from Nazareth, the one who's doing all these works and wonders. Oh, by the way, that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Does he need to say that? No, but he wants them to see. You can't miss this. So he says, Jesus of Nazareth was attested to you in your midst as you yourselves know. There's an emphasis on the fact that Jesus was right before their eyes and not hidden. He's pointing to tangible evidence that they all either witnessed or could go back to. And he says, this Jesus, which is a phrase, by the way, that you'll see multiple times throughout this passage. He says, this Jesus, you crucified. You crucified him. He wants them to understand that not only did they miss the Messiah when God attested him to them, but they were responsible for rejecting him and putting him to death. The lawless men that he's talking about likely refer to the Romans who actually carried out crucifying Jesus. But it was the Jewish people that demanded that he die by the cross in the first place. We see this in Luke chapter 23. Jesus is before Pilate. Verse 13 says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. Peter pointedly tells them that they are responsible for Jesus's death, which is an interesting statement in light of what he says right before this. Beginning of verse 23, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. What he describes here is God's sovereignty. God is in control. Specifically, God was in control of the circumstances surrounding Jesus' death. 
It was his plan that Jesus would die on the cross. Right? We believe that God is sovereign. We believe that God is in control. I think we agree with that here. But he immediately turns around and says, you crucified and killed him. You're responsible for this. In other words, God is sovereign and you are responsible for your actions. There's a perceived tension between the reality of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. These two ideas are often painted in opposition to each other, and yet, here is Peter presenting them harmoniously in the same breath without conflict. In fact, he's not the only one. Jesus himself does this. In the upper room during the Last Supper, after introducing the practice of communion, he tells the disciples that one of them will betray him, and he says, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to him, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Do you see it? The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, as in, I am going to the cross according to God's sovereignty, according to God's plan. But woe to Judas for betraying me. Judas is still responsible for his actions. Both Jesus and Peter present God's sovereignty and human responsibility harmoniously together. I bring this up because I know that this is a point of tension for many. But here's the deal. God is not merely passively aware of what's going on. Peter even says it. He has a definite plan. And we are not merely passive participants. We are responsible for our actions. Both of these truths are presented in Scripture. And just because we can't wrap our minds around the mystery of the relationship between the two, it doesn't make it any less true. There's a fine line between seeking to understand the things of God in humility and seeking to understand the things of God in pride. One pursuit seeks to bring God down to our level so that we can know everything that we want to know, while the other embraces the mystery and sees him as holy and set apart, knowing that his ways are higher than our ways. If we could understand everything perfectly, if we could understand the things of God perfectly, we would be God, and we would have no need for faith. So we should seek to understand, but when we reach the limit of what he has revealed to us in his word, Humility and maturity will rest in that place. And we just trust him. So Peter tells them, God is sovereign in his plan, but they killed him. The good news is that he did not stay dead. He did not stay dead. Verse 24, he says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death has no power over Jesus. And to prove that God raised him up, he points to the words of David. King David, who they would have been familiar with, right? As Jewish people, they would have known David and his words well. 
And so he draws their attention to Psalm 16. And what comes into focus is where David expresses confidence that God would not abandon his soul to Hades, the place of the grave, or let him see corruption. Peter makes it clear, however, that David could not have been talking about himself. Look at verse 29. I just love the way that he puts this. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch, David. He says, I know this. I can confidently say this to you. He goes, um, he died. Like he's buried. His tomb is just over there. I don't know where it is, but go see for yourself. The body's still in the tomb. He says, so, so David could not have been talking about himself here. Well, who was he talking about? Well, he, he says, being therefore a prophet, referring to David and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David was prophesying about this Jesus. And further proof of this is actually found in God's oath to David that Psalm 16 is, I'm sorry, that Peter is referring to. In Psalm 132, the psalmist references this. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. What is the psalmist referring to? He's referring to what is known as the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you, or I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This phrase that he's going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever, it's gonna appear multiple times in 2 Samuel 7. But in the immediate sense, this is fulfilled in David's son, Solomon. But Solomon, being a mere man, could not have an eternal kingdom established. So who is this ultimately referring to? Jesus. Do you see what Peter's doing here? He's telling the people about who this Jesus is through the lens of the Old Testament, which they would have known well. And he's pointing to tangible evidence that they could see with their own eyes. And he's not done. In fact, he brings it back to the present and reiterates that this Jesus, God raised up and that they were witnesses to his resurrection. Now, it's, it's likely that when he says we are all witnesses, he's referring to himself and the apostles with him and perhaps some of those who were in the upper room because Jesus appeared, the resurrected Christ appeared to them and he appeared to many others as well. And so there may have even been some who, who saw Jesus and his resurrection who were in the midst of this crowd right now. He says, we are all witnesses. Go check that tomb because it's empty. You can go see his tomb. He's not there. He has risen. So once again, he's pointing to tangible evidence. And it's under the authority, he says, of the resurrected Jesus that the spirit is being poured out, which you're all seeing and hearing. He said, no one's drunk with wine. <laughs> no one's drunk, it's 9 a.m. No one's drunk with wine. They're all filled with the promised spirit. And the spirit is who Jesus talked about at length in John 14 through 16, by the way, in the upper room with his disciples. They would have expected all of this. They would have seen all of this. 
It says, all of this you're witnessing is happening under the authority of the resurrected Jesus, not David. That's why he says in verse 34, David did not ascend into the heavens. David did not experience resurrection, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David is saying the Lord, as in God the Father, the Lord said to my Lord, God the Son, Jesus. So David is not talking about himself. He could not have been. He is pointing to the one greater than himself, Jesus. Now this isn't the primary takeaway for the morning, but I do believe that we can learn a few things from Peter when it comes to talking to people about Jesus. Right? His goal in all this isn't to point fingers and, and cause them to go sit in a corner in shame. His desire is to show them who Jesus is so that they would know without a shadow of a doubt. Right? He's, he's sharing the gospel with, him, with them. But he does so using language that they know and understand. All right? He's appealing to the Old Testament, which the Jews like, would, would know very well. So he's appealing to the Old Testament and he's pointing them to tangible evidence that they could go check out for themselves. Do we do the same thing when we talk to others about Jesus? Are we intentional about the language we use and, and doing what we can to make it personal for them? Because it is personal. It's not that an, an ironclad argument is going to save them. That's a work of the spirit, which we will see here shortly but we should still be intentional with our words, just as Peter is here with them. So the case that he brings before them, he summarizes in verse 36. He says, let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. So for the second time, he pointedly tells them, not only did you miss Jesus being the Messiah, but you also killed him. You are responsible for crucifying the Messiah. Now, as I said from the start, it's easy for us to get excited about this encounter because Peter's dropping truth on the ones who rejected Jesus. Right? You tell them, Peter. You tell them about how it was their rejection that put Jesus on the cross. You tell them that it was their sin that Jesus died for. And then we quickly realize that although we weren't present in the first century yelling from the crowd, crucify him, crucify him, we are just as responsible as they are. Their sin and rejection nailed Jesus to the cross. But he didn't just die for their sin and rejection. He died for ours too. On the cross, the sin that he took on was not limited to the past. It was not limited to the present at his time, but also the future. He took on our sin too. At some point in our lives, we have rejected Jesus in our sin. And our rejection carries equal weight as theirs. Which means we are just as responsible for his death. But here's the good news. 
for those of us here this morning who have recognized our sin and surrendered our lives to Jesus, trusting and believing that his death on the cross fully paid for our sin, we no longer have to carry the guilt, the shame, and the weight of our sin and rejection. The irony of the gospel is that Jesus died for the very people who rejected him. And he rose three days later to prove it. But for those of you who haven't surrendered your lives to Jesus and trusted him to cover your sin, in your continual rejection of him, you will carry, you'll continue to carry the weight the guilt and the shame that comes with it. Jesus says this in John three thirty six. He says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is a weight that you cannot bear. And the penalty of God's wrath is an eternity separated from him. At some point in our lives, we come face to, with this, face to face with this reality. We come face to face with the fact that our sin, our rejection brought Jesus to the cross. That in our sin, we are, we are apart from him. We are separated from him. We come face to face with that reality at some point, whether that is in the past or whether that is right now this morning for the very first time. And we respond in one of two ways. We either with a hard heart continue to reject it or we respond like they did. Look in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said, Peter, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You ever been cut to the heart before? I'd imagine we all have at some point it's that feeling, whether it's perhaps reading God's word or, or maybe we, were, that we, we got a phone call or some news that we weren't expecting and we just, we feel, I know that when this has happened for me, like my, my skin tingles. You know what I'm talking about. It's that feeling where you're like, you're floating. You're like, you, you just, it catches you off guard. It's very sudden. That's what it means to be cut to the heart. For those of you who have trusted in Jesus, do you remember the moment when you were cut to the heart over your sin and first believed in him? Can you think back to that time? Or perhaps there's a time since when you were confronted with God's word and the Holy Spirit convicted your heart, which is exactly what's happening here, by the way, just as Jesus said would happen in John chapter 15. He says that when he comes, when the spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. It's exactly what is happening here. I remember being cut to the heart when I first came to know Christ. It happened while singing an old hymn and it said, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. I was cut to the heart because I realized that I was that sinner that I was singing about. And I was wondering in that moment, what do I do? What should I do about this? And the answer was in the song, come home, come home, come to Jesus. They asked the same question. What shall we do? 
they came face to face with their own sin and rejection and knew that they needed to respond. And so what shall we do? They ask, Peter tells them plainly in verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So how does Peter call them to respond to the reality of their sin and rejection of Jesus? He calls them to repent and to be baptized. What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to be baptized? Repentance first, it starts with this idea of acknowledging our sin, acknowledging that we are sinful and our sin is what separates us from God. And I believe, I believe that it was Josh La who said this, and if it was not him, I just made him sound smarter, that's fine. He said that repentance, he defined it like this, he said that repentance is agreeing with God, right? It's agreeing that what God says about me, what God says about my sin, what God says in his word, that's true, I agree with this. I am, I'm agreeing that my sin has separated, I'm coming to understand that, but it's not just simply an acknowledgement. Repentance means that I'm turning from my life of sin. I'm going one direction in my sin. I acknowledge that. I know who Jesus is. I accept his free gift of life that he died for my sins and it's fully covered on the cross and he rose three days later. And I am no longer then going to walk on this path of sin. I am now going to turn and go the complete opposite direction. Whereas before I was walking in my sin, now I'm walking to follow Jesus. That's repentance. Baptism. Baptism is our outward response to that reality of repentance. We see it practiced oftentimes when, we, when you see someone going into the water. What we're doing is we are identifying ourselves with Jesus and his death, that we have died to our sin. But we did not stay there just as he did not stay there. That he rose when we come up out of the water symbolically. He has also, he rose to new life and so now we rise to new life. We do this in response to our repentance says, repent and be baptized. But how does Peter know that this is the proper response? Is he just telling them what he thinks best? No. He's following Jesus's instructions to the disciples just before he ascended back to heaven. We know it as the great commission. Matthew chapter 28, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Becoming a disciple of Jesus cannot happen apart from repentance. So to make disciples means calling them first to repent. That's a given in that. And then he says, baptize and teach them. Peter was with Jesus, clearly received his instruction and we're seeing him obediently follow. And here's the beauty of this. These people previously rejected Jesus. Here, Peter's calling them to repent of that and to now turn and identify themselves with the very one that they rejected. And as he lays it all out for them, he reiterates that the promise is for them, which actually brings us back to what he begins with in Joel chapter two at the beginning. So he says to them in this moment, the promise is for you and for your children. Well, what do we see at the beginning of Joel 2, right? 
that God's gonna pour out his spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. He goes on, he says, for all who are far off, which is likely a reference to not the Jews, but the Gentiles, anyone who is not an Israelite, hey, that's us. He says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In Joel 2, says, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here, we see that this promise is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So we see this calling coming to the forefront. The question is, how do they receive this? All right, what shall we do? Peter tells them, well, how are they going to respond? How are they going to receive this? Verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And here it is. So those who received his word, those who took it, they didn't just hear it, they took it to heart, they believed it, they trusted in it. Those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter stood before thousands proclaimed the gospel and 3,000 people responded by believing in Jesus and getting baptized that day. This moment is significant because Jesus' words in Acts 1-8 are being played out, if you can recall them. This is the whole kind of focus of the book of Acts. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Where is this taking place right now? Jerusalem. What we see here is taking place in Jerusalem. Later on, Paul, who would write in Romans 1.16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Salvation was to come first to the Jews in Jerusalem. That's what we see happening right here. It's unfolding. But as we continue to move through the book of Acts, we'll see the gospel expanding outward from here to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, just like Jesus said it would. The birth of the church and the outward expansion of the gospel started right here in Acts 2. And look at how far it has come. Amen. What began in Jerusalem has made it all the way to Akron, Ohio. <laughs> yes. We gather together today as beneficiaries of this movement and the work is not done. It continues and each of us, we are part of God's plan unfolding. Because what Peter declares about Jesus to them is also declared to us. Our sin and rejection crucified him. We are confronted with the same choice. Continue to reject him or turn from our sin and rejection and commit ourselves to him. Most of us here this morning have committed ourselves to the one we once rejected and now we walk in the freedom and the forgiveness that he offers. If you have not done that, 
What is holding you back? That same freedom, that same forgiveness is offered to you if you would simply receive it. If you would simply believe that you don't have to work for anything, you don't have to do anything to earn your salvation because you cannot. If you would simply receive the gift that is Jesus, you can experience this freedom and this forgiveness now. If you know Jesus but haven't taken the step of obedience to be baptized, what are you waiting for? Do you get cleaned up a little bit? That's what Jesus did on the cross, isn't it? Isn't the work of Christ exactly to cleanse us of our sin? He has already cleaned us up. So what are you waiting for? We identify with him in baptism because he has already made us clean. We are called here, repent and be baptized. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.